Episode 13 of War in the Book of Mormon Part 3.3 Battle Analysis, 5th Battle of the Nephite Colony Welcome to War in the Book of Mormon. I am Brian Steed, and in this episode, we will discuss the second battle analysis in this podcast series. In this case, we will focus on what I call the 5th Battle of the Nephite Colony, This is Limhi's existential defense of the Nephite colony with the assistance of Gideon as a kind of chief captain. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The fifth defense presents some very different circumstances and techniques for battle than previously seen. This battle occurred after the execution of King Noah and the ascension of Limhi and his accepting his role as a tributary monarch to the Lamanite king, Laman III. In this battle, the Xenophytes were in a significantly inferior position and were fighting not for freedom, as they had already lost that, but for national survival. Unlike the previous battles between the Xenophytes and the Lamanites, this was a battle that used a stratagem for victory. To get us up to speed with respect to where and when this battle takes place, let's cover some of the history between the second battle of the Nephite colony and this battle. Zenith left the kingdom in a good position. He had defeated Laman III and his army in battle, and, to a degree, driven them out of the land. Zenith handed off the kingdom to his son Noah. Noah was an enterprising and progressive person. This is not my sarcastic voice. I think this was true. He changed agricultural production, he established significant building programs, and he rearranged the religious bureaucracy. That is pretty significant. He was also wicked, and Mormon called him lazy. I think one area of laziness was his seeming unwillingness to maintain his father's spy network and guard force throughout the lands. I expect that such an effort was costly and therefore would have cut into his take from the taxes on the people or his ability to pay off other elites in the community. Regardless of why, he did not maintain the reconnaissance and security. He seemed to have believed that his nice tower that was Quote, so high that he could stand upon the top thereof and overlook the land of Shilom and also the land of Shemlon, which was possessed by the Lamanites, and he could even look over all the land round about. Close quote from Mosiah chapter 11, verse 12. There was both an engagement and a battle fought under Noah that have no details at all. What we do have comes from Mosiah chapter 11, verses 17 and 18, from which I quote, And King Noah sent guards round about the land to keep them off, but he did not send a sufficient number, and the Lamanites came upon them and killed them, and drove many of their flocks out of the land. Thus the Lamanites began to destroy them, and to exercise their hatred upon them. And it came to pass that King Noah sent his armies against them, and they were driven back, or they drove them back for a time. Therefore they returned rejoicing in their spoil. The reason for Noah's actions was that Lamanites were attacking the farmers. 
Noah, as any king, needed to respond as providing protection for subjects is the inherent responsibility of the servant-lord contract in almost all societies, and especially tribal societies. The response, as I just quoted, calls to mind the comments of Jesus when he said, and I quote from Luke chapter 14, verses 28 and 29, For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it, lest haply, after he hath laid the foundation, and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him. Close quote. Noah was poetically that man. He hadn't counted the cost, and then he sent out a force without properly assessing the situation. The result was seemingly worse than total defeat of the force sent, but it also resulted in increased destruction of the efforts of the farmers. Noah then sent a force of sufficient size that drove off the attackers for a time. I think that Mormon put the for a time editorial comment in to express that this was only a temporary victory. We don't know how the Lamanites defeated the armies that Noah sent out to fight them. It is unclear whether the Lamanites in the first engagement, when the Xenophyte army was insufficient, was ambushed, or whether they fought an open field battle. The nature of Lamanite attacks seemed to be along the line of raids and possibly ambushes. The battle of this same period gives the impression of being an open field battle fought against significant odds, hence the dramatic boasting by the Xenophyte soldiers. As we look at these historic developments, it is uncertain whether the Xenophytes were coming up with something completely new in this battle or mirroring Lamanite tactics on a larger scale. I do not want to come across as defending King Noah as he is one of the bad guys in the Book of Mormon. However, I want to make sure that Noah is understood in a correct context. I think that at times in the past I have caricatured the bad guys in the Book of Mormon into some sort of comic book villain, rather than recognizing the mundane commonality of these characters. As I think and write about this in 2020, Noah reminds me of a great many present political leaders. He accomplished a lot in terms of economic activity, building projects, and social reform. He wasn't a good person morally, and he encouraged immoral behavior in others, both directly and through the perversion of religious understandings and the corruption of symbols and story. That ought to sound familiar, as it is common practice for politicians of every political affiliation from every type of country around the world. Noah would have been at home in the halls of power in the 21st century. I say this because I fear that we often miss the present informative realities of the Book of Mormon if we look at the personalities in extreme interpretations. I am sadly more like Laman and Lemuel than I am like Nephi. Many people, maybe me as well, though I don't want to admit it, are more like the priests of Noah who leaned on their breastwork to speak lying and vain words to the people. My warning to myself and you is to keep your eyes open and use the Book of Mormon to inform what you see and then to restructure how you act. Okay, we are back to Noah's military adventures. 
His larger force was successful in driving off the Lamanites for a time. It is unclear how long that time was. My thoughts are that it was for years, at least as I think the boasting of the people and army that followed the military success was in part what inspired the actions and preaching of Abinadi. The people were seen to be dangerously delusional and they needed correction and the Lord sent a prophet to correct them. Abinadi was that man. The time between Zenophite's success and the ultimate failure was anywhere from five years to as many as 15 years. I think it was closer to the five number than the 15, but that is a guess on my part. When the Lamanites did come back for the fourth battle of the Nephite colony, they were powerful in comparison to the Zenophites, such that Noah felt that all they could do was to run before them. I expect that he believed the Lamanites would come into the city, plunder a bit, and then go home as they got tired of the work. Lots of armies have done something like this, and it would seem unlikely that the Lamanites were intending to invade and occupy the lands. That had not been their mode of operation up to this point. What is relevant to our battle analysis is what had happened to the Xenophyte army that had seemingly handily defeated the Lamanites only five to fifteen years earlier under the command of Zenith. Several things could and probably did happen. First, Noah was being personally threatened with attack as he saw the Lamanite army advancing on his city. He may simply have sought a way to escape both his personal danger and the collective danger. He didn't want to rally the people to defend the city because he may have feared what was going to happen once Gideon explained his frustrations after the battle, even if the Xenophytes had won. Second, the army may have simply atrophied over years of neglect. Remember that Zenith used the times of peace for creative and innovative construction of weapons. From the record, as we have it, that was not happening. Noah was using the guards and the servants to provide personal, governmental, and community security. It is unclear whether or not the word guards is another way to say army. However, in the previous quoted passage, the guards were destroyed and then the armies were sent. The armies may not have been ready to defend the land as the king fled. Third, Alma and believers of the teachings of Abinadi had fled the land. They were only several hundred, but that number might have included key members of the armies. Fourth, Noah sent his armies. He did not lead them. That is truly an important change. Noah led a large percentage of his people into the wilderness. Consider the previous discussions on sizes of the populations. There may have been hundreds or thousands of people who fled with Noah before realizing that the king was leaving their families to die. I think the numbers are important, as one can then imagine why someone would agree to such an act. If I were sitting at home and I heard word that we were under attack from an enemy and the local leader was leading a counterattack and needed men to join, I might grab my weapon and join up as others around me were doing the same. I also might be less inclined to loudly express my confusion as we traveled deeper and deeper into the wilderness until the party halted. This is much more likely when we are talking about large numbers rather than a few dozen. 
It is also useful to remember that Zenith sent the women and children to the wilderness for safety at the time of the second battle of the Nephite colony. The wilderness was a place of safety and maybe opportunity for the Zenithites. Those left behind sent their fair daughters to plead for mercy on the part of the attacking Lamanites. This worked. It worked again with the Amulonites. It will not work with the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. Much of this change was a result of the increased percentage of Nephite dissenters among the Lamanite military leadership. War between the two groups became more and more ideological and less about present wealth and benefits. When the people you are fighting are evil, then there is less leniency extended. The Lamanites made the Xenophites tributary subjects, and they placed guards around the land so that the Xenophites couldn't escape. Noah was killed by the men whom he led into the wilderness, and Noah's priests fled deeper into the wilderness before they could also be taken and executed. These priests were led by Amulon. They factor prominently in the story that follows, as they were the ones who abducted the daughters of the Lamanites which was the precipitating cause of the battle under investigation. Now we are ready for the details of this battle. I encourage you to read the account of this battle before listening to the rest of the episode. You will find it in Mosiah chapter 20, verses 6 to 26. Geographical Setting Location As stated previously, the Zenophites lived in an agricultural zone, probably a valley with three cities or occupation areas of significance, the cities of Nephi, Shilom, and Shemlon. The first two cities and their accompanying lands have been occupied by the Zenophites, and the Lamanites occupied the third. To this point in the Book of Mormon, it still seems that these were the only settlements of any size in the immediate area. The first and second battles, led by Zenith, are supposed to have occurred in the open field southeast of Nephi and somewhat between Nephi and Shilom. The third battle of the Nephite colony was a security response after the guards were destroyed. It is supposed that this battle was probably a series of engagements fought in the open fields and the woods to drive off the Lamanites at the various guard posts or settlements in the wilderness between Nephi and Shemlon. The fourth battle of the Nephite colony was the abandonment of the city of Nephi by Noah and the invasion of that city by the Lamanite army. This was the first time a battle of sorts takes place in the immediate vicinity, if not within, a city. That unique situation may have been a part of the reason why the Lamanites were willing to cut a deal and leave. That brings us to the fifth battle of the Nephite colony. This battle took place, presumably, between the cities of Nephi and Shemlon in the forests and fields. The sixth battle of the Nephite colony almost immediately followed the fifth battle, as the Lamanites sought to overcome their shock at the surprise attack and to continue their exacting revenge for the abduction of their daughters. The sixth battle occurred in the fields outside the walls of the city Nephi, and was a battle only in that armies were present for a battle, though no fighting occurred. The terrain of this battle, or the larger series of engagements associated with the Xenophyte colony, is never explained. I suppose that there was a wilderness between Nephi and Shemlon. We are told some details in this battle that we are not usually given. 
I will quote now from Mosiah chapter 20, verses 8 and 9. I will quote and reference these verses again later as I discuss the events of the battle. And now Limhi had discovered them from the tower. Even all the preparations for war did he discover. Therefore he gathered his people together and laid wait for them in the fields and in the forests. And it came to pass that when the Lamanites had come up, that the people of Limhi began to fall upon them from their waiting places and began to slay them. Close quote. The Xenophites hid themselves in wading places among the fields and forests. This makes me think that the Xenophites were separated in more than one location and that they used different types of terrain and vegetation to provide suitable camouflage as they apparently caught the Lamanites by surprise. If so, this was the first reference to this technique in the Book of Mormon. It is also probable that the waiting places were close to the primary trails between Shemlon and the Xenophyte cities. I am making a sketch of the battle available on the War in the Book of Mormon Facebook page to provide some visual depiction of what I am suggesting. I refer to this image as a sketch because I know it is not a map in that the locations are given to show relationships as imagined rather than representations of something that actually existed. I mean, I actually think it existed, but I don't know how it looked as it existed. That's what I'm getting at. Who was involved? Nephite forces. No force size is given for either army, though we are told that the Nephite force was less than half the size of the Lamanite army. There was a general reduction in the size of the Xenophyte army over the Noah period, though the record does not explain why. I have given some ideas previously. They may be useful in understanding the size of force or size disparity. Less investment from the king, less emphasis, less communal commitment to security, less communal concern for security, departure of Alma and his people, the weakening of the army through pursuit of Alma and his people are among the reasons. Some of these reasons may have been facilitated through a desire for an easier life or the perception of a defeated and cowed opponent which led many men away from the idea of military service. There was also a greater emphasis on economic gain in the Noah period. It is clear that Noah continued with his father's efforts to make the military a relatively permanent standing force with his stationing of guards about the land. From all of this, and primarily from the statement of having less than half the size of the Lamanite force, one could imagine a Xenophyte force of somewhere around 3,000 to 6,000 fighters. It is unclear whether Limhi led his people in this battle or not. The record seems to suggest this when it says, quote, Therefore he gathered his people together and laid wait for them in the fields and in the forests. From Mosiah chapter 20, verse 8. Close quote. Later, it says that Gideon was the king's captain in Mosiah chapter 20, verse 17. In the Noah era, Noah sent his army to battle and did not go himself. This means it is uncertain whether the king led his army to battle or not. However, given the dire circumstances and the fact that Limhi was gathering intelligence on the Lamanite preparations himself, it is probable that he did participate and Gideon served as a subordinate commander. As the army is described as being in the fields and the forests, it was probably in at least two separate sections. 
We will address this further in the tactical chronology. However, it is important to note that if this supposition is correct, then this is the first reference, note another first, of separate elements used in a battle. The Xenophytes did not seem to have fought in a single solitary mass or even in one set of ordered ranks as discussed in the last episode. The Xenophytes had people, groups probably, maybe even detachments, with separate tactical tasks and purposes, operating in a concerted way on the battlefield. This is starting to read like famous Roman battles and not simple tribal warfare. It is certain that Limhi was the key Nephite or Xenophyte figure present for the sixth battle of the Nephite colony, as he and Laman III were the primary causes of de-escalating Lamanite frustration and anger. Lamanite forces. Mormon does not provide a sense of scale for this battle, but he does give us relative size in that he says the Lamanite force was more than twice the size of the Xenophyte force. Given the circumstances and anger over the abduction of their daughters, and the fact that the record emphasizes that the king himself went up to lead the army, it should be expected that the Lamanite army in this battle is at least comparable with previous Lamanite army sizes of between 6,000 to 12,000 or even 15,000. No casualty figures are given for either force other than to say that the king of the Lamanites, Laman III, was found among the dead. Given the fact that the Xenophytes surprised the Lamanites, it can be expected that the Lamanite army broke and ran with a smaller percentage of casualties than in an open field engagement. Therefore, this would not be comparable to the casualties in the second defense of the Nephite colony. Another support to this is the fact that the Lamanites returned to attack the city of Nephi in short order, maybe even the next day or within a couple of days. This leads me to a reference that I like from Lewis Kozer in his book, The Functions of Social Conflict, from 1956, and I quote from pages 136 to 137. Trial by attrition may thus serve to reveal the relative strength of the parties, and once relative strength has been ascertained, it may be easier for the parties to arrive at new accommodations with each other. Quote. His rather profound point is that if an opponent feels like he has been tricked, then he is more likely to re-engage in the conflict, whereas if he believes that he has been worn down or exhausted, then he is more inclined to accept that his opponent is the better man, the better team, or the better military and concede the conflict. In our battle, the Lamanites clearly recognized that they had been tricked, and they probably were ashamed that they broke and ran so easily, and they also realized that the king was among those who had fallen. No accommodation here. Revenge needed to be exacted. Key leaders in the battle, Nephite forces. Limhi, king of the Nephite colony. He was the son of King Noah and he ruled the Xenophytes as a tributary monarch to Laman III. He had only recently assumed the throne. He was a righteous man and understood the failings of his father Noah. Gideon, Captain of the King Gideon served under Noah as well, and in his anger swore to kill Noah after returning from the failed mission to find the people of Alma. 
Once Limhi took the throne, Gideon seems to have taken on the responsibilities of securing the kingdom and searching for the priests of Noah. He was an advisor to the king and later would be killed by the Antichrist Nehor as the two men contended about the nature of God. Where Gideon was slain by Nehor was a valley that was later named after Gideon and it also became a Nephite settlement with that same name. Lamanite forces, son of King Laman, Laman III, king of the Lamanites. It is probable that this is the same king described in the previous podcast, though we don't know that for certain. This could be a Laman IV. However, the timeline supports Laman III, and we will stick with that. It is worth noting that he was king at the end of Zenith's life, and he fought Zenith in the second battle of the Nephite colony that we discussed last episode. He also led or directed the fighting during the reign of Noah. In this sense, he has fought three generations of Zenophyte leaders over about 20 years. He seemed motivated to fight Zenith in about 164 BC because of an attempt to establish his bona fides or bona fides as king, and he fought Noah in about 160 to 145 BC because he sensed weakness and he wanted to realize the original intent of his father in bringing the Xenophites under Lamanite domination, which he did. In this battle, which takes place in about 144 BC, he was responding to the popular outrage over the perceived oath-breaking of the Xenophites and the abduction of Lamanite daughters, probably women about to be married. In this battle, Laman III was wounded and thought dead and abandoned by his people on the battlefield. He was taken captive, treated, and healed by the Xenophytes. He would be instrumental in talking his people down from their rage in what I labeled the sixth battle of the Nephite colony. Grand and Theater Context I have discussed the general history of the Xenophytes in episode 11. This battle occurred only a short time probably within a year after the fall of the independent Xenophyte monarchy to a Lamanite army and the execution of Noah by his own people. The priests of Noah, who accompanied the king into the wilderness, fled the immolation of the king and went deeper into the wilderness. It is worth a note that this wilderness was no joke in terms of difficulties for navigation. We are told on several occasions that groups were misoriented, delayed, or simply lost in it. Amulon, who led the priests of Noah, will later be unable to guide the Lamanite army back to their lands from his own. And that was why they stumbled on Alma I and his people. Into this confusing wilderness, Amulon led the priests of Noah. They must not have gone far because they were able to orient themselves on the land of Shemlon and be there when the Lamanite daughters went out to dance. I am going to be judgmental here. The priests of Noah were creepers. They read like characters from a James Patterson novel. Some of these men had families, as we are told in Mosiah chapter 20, verse 3, and yet there they were watching a bunch of young women dancing in the woods. Ew! I suppose that the dancing of the Lamanite daughters was some traditional behavior, maybe a coming-of-age or premarital event. Regardless, 
Many of them must have gone out to this location because Mormon tells us that the priests waited until there were but a few present before abducting 24 of them. They kidnapped these women. There are stories of this happening in ancient Roman history with the Sabine women where the Roman men stole the women from another village. From the Roman perspective, the story is romanticized and it was brought forward in history to make a modern musical comedy called Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Normally, I would argue that projecting present morals onto past events is not useful or informative. I think that is true in this case as well, but I provide this explanation to clarify the Lamanite anger. In today's sense, this was kidnapping, rape, and probably a variety of other serious, felonious crimes. No wonder the Lamanite people were angry. In fact, the Lamanites were so angry that they went to war over this. Before criticizing the Lamanites, consider that this is probably the most justified Lamanite attack on a Nephite-related settlement. Because a reader knows the story that it wasn't the Xenophites who committed these crimes, it is easy to see the Lamanites as unreasonable. I ask that you remember that the Lamanites had no reason to know about the priest of Noah, and once the king was told, to his credit, he believed this story. Admittedly, he was under duress, but the belief seems sincere, as recorded by Mormon. Operational Context Once again, reconnaissance or intelligence gathering was crucial to the success of the Xenophytes. The king himself participated in the activities as he observed the Lamanite preparations from the tower built by his father. I think this is an interesting detail. Mormon called Noah lazy. I offered some reasons why this might have been so. In Mosiah chapter 20 verse 8, we get another reason. Noah's son knew what the Lamanites were doing because he was watching and paying attention. Maybe if Noah had done the same, then under his reign, his people would not have been surprised so often. Essentially, Mormon is expressing that Zenith and Limhi did their jobs by discovering and knowing what the enemy was about. In a practical and modern conflict sense, what Limhi did was more surveillance than intelligence, as unlike the previous episode's battle analysis, Limhi did not know the reasons for the preparations until after the battle, and he interrogated the king. We learn during this interrogation that the surveillance was ongoing as Gideon was able to report on further Lamanite preparations for war and the danger of the Zenophite position. Zenith knew intentions because of his spy network, and Limhi and Gideon knew of actions because of observation or surveillance, which is prolonged observation of a specific target or target area. Limhi and Gideon seemed comfortable changing what we might call the rules of war, the Xenophytes were not attempting to fight the opponent face-to-face as in Zenith's day, but they sought to offset the Lamanite numerical advantage through surprise. Mormon will later discuss the significance of stratagems amongst the Nephites, but here it is interesting that he did not call this a stratagem, nor did he mention whether this particular stratagem, for stratagem it was, was a bad or a good thing. It was simply what they did. It may be that the ongoing, small-scale engagements between the Lamanites and Xenophytes had changed the means of battle from open field to the use of camouflage and ambush. Technical Context 
No information on weapons or equipment is given, so it must be assumed that the Zenophyte warriors of Limhi were similarly equipped as in Zenith's day. By that I mean that each fighter probably had a missile weapon, or multiple such weapons, and one or more melee weapons. We are told in Mosiah chapter 21 verse 7 that the Zenophites, quote, put on their armor, close quote, before going to battle. This reference is for a later battle, and not the one under discussion here. However, it is also the first reference to armor in the land of promise in the Book of Mormon. We have no idea what this means. It is just here as a thing. Mormon doesn't express that this is a different action from previous, so one might be safe in assuming that the Xenophytes had some form of armor in our current battle under discussion. This might simply be an extension of the meaning of having a leather girdle. This is just one more first. I think the most important first is what I am supposing to be a divided ambush. I am supposing this because we are told that the Xenophytes, quote, laid wait for them in fields and the forests, close quote, which implies two different locations and therefore a divided command. One of the principles of war is mass. Another element is concentration. One wants to throw the center of gravity of one's force against the center of gravity of the opposing force, to paraphrase the 19th century Prussian military officer and theorist Karl von Clausewitz. That center of gravity is formed through a concentration. We know that the Xenophytes were outnumbered significantly in this battle. If I am right, then Limhi, or Gideon, decided to divide their inferior force in the face of a superior enemy. If they did this, they did so because they believed that the benefit of surprise would offset the weakness in numbers. Only fools, or military geniuses, do such things. I ask the listener to give either Limhi or Gideon his or their due as a genius, because the difference between the two in such a case as this is the result of the battle. In this case, the end justified the means. You're a genius if you win, you're a fool if you lose. This was an ambush, which meant that regardless of whether or not the forces were divided, they still had to signal when to attack and do so in a manner that would generate the most shock. I am a big fan of understanding shock on the battlefield. I quote from my own book, Piercing the Fog of War, pages 17 and 18, and 27 and 28. Shock, in a medical sense, causes a lack of body function through the shunting of blood from key areas, primarily the head, and can eventually lead to death if severe and left untreated. The cessation of body fluid movement is deadly. This has, at times, led to the death of people with relatively minor injuries. It is always something of a mystery how something that has little relation to the seriousness of the injury can end a human life. Shock at the larger societal level has much the same effect on the larger body of the community. One of the primary ways to treat shock is to keep the injured person calm, which is facilitated if the person assisting is experienced with serious injuries and can act as a calming agent. Just as the medical condition causes problems in, the f in a flow of blood to nourish mind and body, social shock has a similar impact on the ability to develop cognitive thought and especially to think creatively. 
In the military arena, most of the situations where one army flees a battlefield are the result of shock. This shock can happen suddenly, or it can happen gradually. It is the presentation of an experience so outside a collective conceptual box that leads to shock. The opponent is overwhelmed by the experience and cannot think creatively, and therefore is forced into the fight or flight mode of thinking, which in combat usually leads to flight. Close quote. The Lamanite army experienced shock. Its king was dead, or so they thought, and they had never experienced this kind of large-scale ambush. They broke and ran. In part, this rapid disintegration of the Lamanite army is why they were able to rapidly reform and return to the attack within a matter of hours or days. For the conduct of this battle, the nature of an ambush would mean that the transition from missile to melee weapons probably happened much quicker to prevent the opponent from overcoming their shock. Tactical Chronology This is my supposition of how the events transpired. This is based off the text, which is rather limited with respect to details. The details of the battle come from Mosiah chapter 20, verses 6 to 12, and I quote, And it came to pass that when the Lamanites found that their daughters had been missing, they were angry with the people of Limhi, for they thought it was the people of Limhi. Therefore they sent their armies forth, yea, even the king himself went before his people, and they went up to the land of Nephi to destroy the people of Limhi. And now Limhi had discovered them from the tower, even all the preparations for war did he discover. Therefore he gathered his people together and laid wait for them in the fields and in the forests. And it came to pass that when the Lamanites had come up, that the people of Limhi began to fall upon them from their waiting places and began to slay them. And it came to pass that the battle became exceedingly sore, for they fought like lions for their prey. And it came to pass that the people of Limhi began to drive the Lamanites before them, yet they were not half so numerous as the Lamanites, but they fought for their lives and for their wives and for their children. Therefore they exerted themselves, and like dragons did they fight. And it came to pass that they found the king of the Lamanites among the number of their dead, Yet he was not dead, having been wounded and left upon the ground, so speedy was the flight of his people. I want to discuss this piece by piece. The Lamanites, in their anger, gathered together their people. They did so under the observation of the Xenophyte king and others from their towers. Limhi gathered his people and they marched into their fields and forests along the primary trails moving from Shemlon to Nephi. Based on the narrative describing the Xenophytes being in fields and forests, it is probable that they formed with one force in front in the fields, probably led by the king, as this was the force primarily responsible for protecting the city and preventing the Lamanite advance. The second force was in the forest, probably led by Gideon, with the responsibility of inflicting the shock on the force in depth. In this battle, Mormon used the phrase fall upon to describe how the Xenophytes began the battle. It says in the same verse that they, quote, began to fall upon them from their waiting places, close quote. Here was where the Xenophytes ambushed their opponents. They used the element of surprise and a violent and determined assault on the moving Lamanites to cause them to flee within a relatively short time. 
Limhi probably fell upon the front of the Lamanite force, and once Gideon heard the engagement begin, he would have attacked that portion still in file on the trail in the woods, being hit while expecting to be calmly marching while at the same time hearing battle happening in front gave shock its full measure of impact on the Lamanite force. Shock gave way to fear and then to panic, and the Lamanites stopped fighting and began to flee. It is in the speed of their flight that the Lamanites leave their wounded king among the dead. I want to address a couple of the details in the verses that I just read. The Lamanites sent their armies, plural. This could mean many things, but I want to emphasize that it means more than one organization. No longer was it a host, a single mass. Maybe the division was tribal. That seems most likely, as we do not ever see a description of maneuvers on the part of the Lamanites. There does not seem to be a sense of multiple subordinate organizations working in concert. Mormon makes a deal of the king leading the army. This had been the norm, but it did not seem to have been the case during much of the fighting against King Noah. The point is to emphasize the societal importance of this battle for these reasons. Mormon emphasizes that Limhi discovered all of their preparations from their tower. Whatever that means, it means more than Limhi seeing a Lamanite army. He probably saw them gather. He might have seen their marching order and divisions into armies. The battle lasted some time. This seems to be a point of some issue in that we are told in verses 9 and 10 that the battle began and that it was intense. The phrase, fought like lions, is used. Remember that America, including South America, has mountain lions, cougars, pumas, etc. that are often called lions. Yet, in verse 12, we are told that their flight was speedy. All battles seem to last forever for those involved. This battle certainly lasted some time and was intense, and the flight, once begun, probably was rapid and chaotic. Both things, a long battle and a speedy flight, can be true at once. We are given another first in verse 11 as we hear about the justification for fighting on the part of the Xenophytes. This was for their families. I want to look forward and ask you to consider what was written on Moroni's title of liberty from Alma chapter 46 verse 12. Fighting to protect families is at the heart of the Nephite law of war, if you will. I want to jump to a really interesting and important point. It is again another first, the discussion of battlefield medicine and treatment of the Lamanite king. The reader is treated to an interesting cultural note at the end of the battle when the Xenophyte forces found the wounded Lamanite king among the Lamanite dead. They first treated the king and cared for his wounds, but they did this only to present him before Limhi, recommending his execution. This denoted an interesting conceptualization of the rules of warfare between these two peoples. Rather than simply kill the Lamanite king where he lay, or just leave him there to die, as they clearly believed he deserved, they recognized that an opposing ruler needed to be brought before their own ruler for judgment, and that his wounds must first be treated. It is a perverse sort of logic typically employed among modern states, where people condemned by the state to die are protected from committing suicide, 
or where wanted criminals are captured, treated, healed, and then brought before a court to be sentenced to death. Here in the Book of Mormon Antiquity, we see a similar pattern of behavior. I just find it fascinating. Battlefield Leadership It is unclear from which source, whether Lamanite or Xenophyte, the idea of army-size ambushes was derived, but Limhi is the first with clarity in the record to use it, and therefore to him should go the credit for this innovation. His decision to utilize the ground and the vegetation to maximum effect is a lesson readers will note in the efforts of Moroni about 70 years later. By dividing his inferior force in the face of a superior enemy and by using the terrain and natural camouflage, he achieved surprise that was turned to shock that resulted in retreat of his opponents. These critical decisions, either made by Limhi or his captain Gideon, were essential to the Xenophyte victory. The other decision of importance is that of preserving the life of the Lamanite king and using him as the primary negotiator and mediator between the two warring peoples. In this story, Limhi clearly saw, based on information from Gideon, that military victory alone would not preserve his people. Not only did his forbearance and wisdom preserve his people, but it also secured an oath from the king of the Lamanites protecting the Xenophyte community from future attack. I want to direct the listener to read the exchange of the opposing kings from Mosiah chapter 20 verses 13 through 26. This demonstrates the relationship between Gideon and Limhi and the exchange between the two men as well as the exchange between the two kings. I want to express the difference between tribal leadership and authoritarian leadership. I don't know what goes through your mind when you hear the word king. But what used to go through my mind was a Hollywood version of a medieval king who simply issued orders and everyone jumped to obey. I emphasize this as a Hollywood version because medieval European kingship was much more collegial than I have just described. That is what went through my teenage brain when I first read the Book of Mormon. Living in the Middle East years later taught me something radically different. First. The word in Arabic and Hebrew that is typically translated into king in English comes from the root that means to own or possess. In this sense, a king was the person who possessed things. Kingship in tribal societies was never authoritarian unless one tribe completely dominated the other tribes. But even in those circumstances, there was and is competition within the tribe for influence. Leading in such environments always involves consultation. This is why kings had councils, so that they could counsel together. In the dozen verses or so just referenced, one sees the consultation and counsel offered and received between king and counselor. Significance This battle like so many others in the Book of Mormon, does not bring an end to the animosity between the two primary antagonist groups. In fact, the Lamanites began mistreating and intimidating the Xenophytes within a relatively short period after the battle. No long-term resolution was made, though without the success in this battle, the Xenophyte community would probably have ceased to exist even as a tributary monarchy. The real significance 
was the confirmation of intelligence gathering as critical to national survival and the use of the large-scale ambush as a valid and useful means of combat. This tactic will be used by Moroni at the Battle of Manti and will be modified by both Moroni and Antipas into what is termed here the bait-and-switch tactic. This was where one force was used to lure the enemy from their prepared position while another force established a position from which to ambush the opponent. Lessons learned. Temporal. Despite the limited information, there are useful lessons taught from this battle. Identification. Limhi's continued emphasis on intelligence gathering was crucial. Even though he did not understand the motivation for the battle, he was able to clearly identify not just size, but he also knew how they would fight and how they would react to the shock he planned. Limhi could not prevent the battle because he didn't know about the causes. He clearly did not have insight into what was happening or being said inside Shemlon, which speaks to the fact that the spy network of Zenith's day was no longer in place. If Limhi had known why the Lamanites wanted to go to war, he may have been able to address the situation through embassy rather than through conflict. Isolation. The use of the woods and what appears to be an attack on the Lamanite armies as they marched through them effectively isolated the Lamanites from any coordinated effort between their armies. Suppression. The Lamanites were on the march and not available to deploy into their hosts that they seemed comfortable with during this period. Maneuver Limhi's positioning of his forces and the manner in which he fell upon the Lamanites meant that he immediately seized an emotional or perceived position of advantage, and the intensity with which his soldiers fought meant the Xenophytes never relinquished this position. Destruction Complete perceptual domination destroyed the Lamanite will. This is a clear support for the ability of surprise turned into shock effect as a force multiplier on any battlefield. It is important to emphasize that if the Xenophyte soldiers had not fought like lions and dragons, the surprise would have worn off and the Lamanites would have gained the upper hand. Surprise, all by itself, typically does not result in victory. Lessons learned. Spiritual. Of the two lessons, these are the more important ones. I want to emphasize that these are my examples of how one can derive useful lessons from the details and the military elements of the Book of Mormon. It is okay if you have derived other, hopefully inspired lessons, than what I present here. I am offering my thinking not as the final thoughts on these types of lessons. I am interested in your thoughts in comments or emails. I have mentioned several things throughout this episode, and so this is not a comprehensive list of all the possible things one could learn. Spies and Action We need to listen to those who see the actions and intent of the adversary, and then act with aggressiveness and guile to achieve victory. It is not enough to simply receive the information. Immediate and creative action is required. Stratagem. The Lord expects creative solutions. We need to use our spiritual force in ways that give the greatest possibility for success. We need to surround the adversary and use multiple means to engage and surprise them. No enemy is forever. 
The person who seems to be our most implacable opponent may turn out to be our greatest advocate. Do not, out of rash thinking, destroy what could be a great opportunity for victory. Conclusion The transition from open field mass frontal assaults to ambushes in the woods and fields is conceptually great and culturally significant. It speaks to societal perceptions of just war and rules of war. In many times and places, the ambush has been eschewed as unacceptable between states and been treated as trickery and not really a confirmation of ability. It may have been so in this period as well. We do not have a record of the Lamanite king's objections to the tactic, but later, at the Battle of Manti, complaints of the technique are given by the Lamanite force commander. It is possible that here the reader receives an insight into the relativism of acceptable rules of war. All things being equal, it is expected that the opponents will face each other in the open to decide the right and the powerful. Here things were not equal, and national survival was at stake. Hence, the normal rules no longer applied, and anything went, so to speak. Another real possibility is that this was the use of an established pattern of conflict between the two peoples writ large. Small ambushes may have become the norm, and therefore no one was surprised with the tactic, but simply the scale. The possibilities make this battle and this entire period crucial to the shaping of armed conflict within the Book of Mormon. Generations of behavior were affected by the storage, which they certainly had in greater detail than we do. The next episode is a summary of the Xenophyte technology, tactics, and innovations as we close out this important period of war in the Book of Mormon. As we discuss each of the details, I will suggest ways that these might inform our behavior and actions. I remind you that I am posting battlefield sketches on the Facebook page. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. All one word, War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. Until next time.